Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. So, yeah, so um, we have some typed-in questions, and we, as I said, we want to make this interactive. We have a great panel. We have Dr. Goel from Cedars. We have Michael, who you met, our, our fellow, Dr. Troy, and then Dr. Jasuja. So I think what we'll do is, again, get up, yell questions out. I think we'll you know, try to take it in a little bit of order and maybe make it based, based on the case a little bit. So we had a case of a patient who you know, we suspected had some acute clot. Now, many of our patients already present with chronic disease, but, you know, what, how do you, I guess, how do you make that distinction? Because you get, I think you guys get, you know, tons of PEs, if I remember correctly. I'm not sure why you have so many PEs at Cedars. We don't have, you know, maybe, I don't know. We can speculate on that. But, you know, you must face that acute versus chronic decision all the time. And how, what's your approach over there? Yeah. Um, so I think the, the first thing is it rains a lot of PEs probably because we also make sure that we get consulted for every PE as mm-hmm. part of our PERT service. So I think every PERT service is structured a little bit differently, but um, we like to get consulted for any pulmonary embolism, what, even if it's low-risk PE, um, mm-hmm. not just the intermediate and high-risk PEs, because what we've learned and is kind of points a little bit towards what Dr. Jessica was saying was that PEs are, are complex and they can have different lasting effects, both kind of in the acute and the, the long-term setting. So I think one of the important things to, that we keep in mind is, yeah, you can have purely acute clot, you can have purely chronic clot that comes through the door, or you can have a mix of acute on chronic. And so I think really going back to the basics, really getting a really good history. What is the chronicity of these symptoms? How acutely did they develop? Is there an acute on chronic you know, component to when the symptoms developed, um, really getting a sense for is it provoked or unprovoked, and if so, when those, you know, those factors were occurring. Um, also, really radiographically, I think ha- keeping an eye out for all the findings that you mentioned are really important. If you have old CT scans, like they've had a PE in the past, I'll really look at both because sometimes you realize that, oh, this clot that I'm seeing today is actually in the exact same distribution as it was five years ago. That, that's been you know, several cases that we've come across that. Um, also looking at the echo, you know, echocardiogram and how that correlates to the hemodynamics, I think um, in the acute phase is helpful. Um, you know, do they have a terrible blown RV and are they compensated or not compensated? Kind of make me think, is this purely an acute process versus they've actually been living with this for a while? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think between history, imaging, and correlating the echo findings um, to the acute presentation is, is a good starting point. Mm-hmm. And, and I might just add on to that a little bit. So, you know, the question is how long you, some of these people have never been on anticoagulation, they're rolling through the door. You know, they got maybe some acute clot, maybe some chronic, something in between. The history is, you know, uh, they've been symptomatic for a while, and maybe they got acutely worse, something happened, they passed out. So what is the, I can't remember in this case, how long you give anticoagulation a try, Yeah. and what was your approach? uh, This is actually a a great case to illustrate that point of, of just like historical imaging, because this person had presented to the Southside Hospital seven years prior. And her representation CAT scan had clearly some acute component, but those eccentric clots, and Dr. Sagar can attest to this as well, 
a lot of it was very similar to how it looked previously. Right. And she, she'd actually undergone a lot of other extensive stuff previously. She already had an, a, a negative prothrombotic workup. But having the, that previous CAT scan, I think, had played a major role in our service's ability to say, we think that there is some serious chronicity here, aside from just the, the features of eccentricity. And so I, I, my suspicion is that this was really an acute, unchronic presentation. Yeah, it's always hard to know. And there, there is some guidance on this, you know, the, in terms of guidelines, in terms of, quote, how long you wait, although I'm not sure I always agree with that. Do you? And so technically our guidelines are um, for patients who present with an acute PE, before you can determine that they have an official diagnosis of CTEF, they must undergo three months of anticoagulation. But, and as Dr. Chanik was alluding to in our group, once we see these, these findings you know, on history, as Kushbu mentioned, especially on imaging and based on their echo, if we have an inkling that this is actually acute on chronic disease or um, actually just purely chronic disease, but they've never actually been on anticoagulation before, we'll usually you do at least two months of anticoagulation before getting a VQ scan and a repeat echo. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so the, I had a, there were a lot of um, the questions are kind of firing in here. There are a lot of them trying to group them, kind of related to, you know, how we make this distinction of is there a small vessel disease or more distal arteriopathy, you know, what is truly operable versus inoperable, and like trying to get some detail on how those decisions are made from a, a diagnostic perspective. Absolutely, and I was worried I was going to run out of time, so I didn't, I'm glad someone asked this question. So in terms of operability, really we use our PA-gram or sometimes our dual-energy CT or CT pulmonary angiogram. Now, in an experienced center, and that's qualified as a center that, that the surgeon has done over 50 cases of PTE, um, actually you can surgically access segmental and subsegmental disease. It really depends on the experience of the surgeon. But this is, I think, where the, the critical aspect of having a multidisciplinary CTEF meeting with surgeons, pulmonary doctors, cardiologists, hematologists, and IR really comes in because we actually look at the imaging together. We look at the PA gram. We determine, okay, which part is going to be surgically accessible or not. Um, in terms of the question about the microangiopathy that comes in, obviously CTEF is a, is a multimodal disease, right? You have your proximal obstruction that results in, in pulmonary hypertension, but you also can develop this microangiopathy in vessels that are less than 500 micrometers in size. And that really comes with looking at how are these patients doing hemodynamically when you look at their right heart cath. And, um, looking at, you know, how is their RV function, what is their pulmonary vascular resistance, what is their functional status, and we really incorporate that into the multidisciplinary discussion on, you know, how safe are these patients for surgery, are the, is there a certain group of very sick patients that we actually want to use medical therapy going in to sort of optimize them, mm -hmm. and so I think the key point is really using that multidisciplinary discussion. Yeah, we can talk, a little, you know, a little bit more about, you know, how we make you know, the adjunctive therapies along with it, like medical therapy, uh, BPA after surgery or before surgery. We have a lot of those sort of hybrid type approaches. And there's, there is some data on this. I mean, the, someone asked about medical therapy prior to surgery and what's the role. And it's, it's still somewhat debated. I think there's some data that, you know, medical therapy may improve the function of hemodynamics prior to an intervention. Maybe it decreases the risk although that's debated, 
what we don't want to do is delay surgery to try medical therapy. And that's been shown pretty clearly that patients who have clearly operable disease, and there was a question on that, are less responsive to medical therapy for pulmonary hypertension. Kind of makes sense. It's more of an anatomic problem than a arteriopathy problem. But these, as Sonia said, are, are clear you know, judgments. There's a, another question just to kind of keep it moving on the CPET. And you know, clearly, the use of cardiopulmonary exercise testing, which we'll hear more about from our esteemed experts in a little bit. But maybe I'll ask Kushbu, because I mean, we do quite a few of these uh, invasive CPETs. But you, know, you see a lot of these patients, they have some residual dyspnea and exertion. Maybe they have some chronic clot. You know, may, they may not have overt severe pulmonary hypertension. What, what, how do you approach those? And maybe specifically as it relates to, you know, provocation testing, exercise testing. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, cardiopulmonary exercise testing is a very, very inf uh, thorough test that we do, even if it's, you know, not a full invasive CPAT with a SWAN, um, because it really gives you so much hemodynamic data and can really help put you in a direction of, where do, what do I think you know, the, the, the limitations are coming from? And so I think strategically using and timing the CPET is important. So I think in, in your case, this was a really good example of, you know, we had a diagnosis up front, we've right. you know, initiated medical management, now the functional status has improved, but it's not, still not perfect. And I think that's kind of the, the spot where I think it can be helpful to use, start with a CPET um, and say, am I seeing signs, you know, that this could be a pulmonary vascular disease process? And I think in this case, that really helped push you from now that she's, this patient's behaving like a CTED patient, mm -hmm. but with exercise, that's really when you unravel that this person has a lot of limitations. And then you were able to push the case to say, hey, maybe we should actually remove that clot. So I think it can be helpful to answer the question, be a piece of that puzzle to say how much of that clot is actually contributing to pH either at rest or with exercise, and therefore, and, you know, symptom-wise as well. Yeah, no, the, I mean, we have a, you know, world expert, Dr. Cooper, sitting in the audience, and, you know, he could chime in, although we may hear about it a little bit later, but, you know, the question becomes, you know, what are we looking for on a CPAT, even a non-invasive, to indicate that this patient exercise intolerance after a PE has been contributed to by you know, or is by the clot as opposed to, let's say, deconditioning or obesity. And I think that's still sometimes a challenge because we have a lot of patients who have some residual thrombus after a PE and a lot of patients who are still short of breath. I know Tim Mars in San Diego has done some studies looking at, you know, dead space as a good predictor of uh, exercise capacity after uh, PE in patients with chronic clots. Obviously, if you have overt exercise-induced pH, you know, we at least think that may be the cause of the persistent dysmill that we can't say for sure. Um, you know, maybe we'll call you out, mind your own business in the audience. What, what do you think about that? You're the, you know, you're the guy. The rest of us are just faking it with CPAT. <laughs> oh, well, thanks, Rich. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, firstly. And thank you for including me in this marvelous program. So. You know, the thing about uh, cardiopulmonary exercise testing is we do get a lot of data. I mean, the, f the starting point is to define the degree of aerobic impairment, if you like. Um, and, you know, that can be used in, in risk stratification. But specifically with regard to um, um, th chronic thromboembolic pulmonary disease, you know, we want to know what the gas exchange abnormalities are. And, and so we, we need some degree of invasive 
CPET. Uh, at minimum, we need to measure the alveolar arterial oxygen partial pressure gradient at maximum exercise and calculate the VDVT. I mean, we can look at VDVT indirectly uh, in the slope relationship between ventilation and carbon dioxide output, but it's better to have arterial blood gases and, and actually measure it. And then you get two sort of two endpoints that tell us about high VQ and low VQ gas exchange abnormalities. And then the crucial question is, well, they may or may not be present. Do they contribute to exercise limitation? And, you know, that's very nuanced in the way we kind of unravel all of that. But better to have the data and be informed, I think, even though it's sometimes quite complex to interpret. Yeah. Uh, Michael, would you? Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, Mike. You know, so, you know, I think that, you know, cardiopulmonary exercise testing, you know, has, you know, definite endpoints that are compatible with, you know, pH, compatible with heart disease, compatible with deconditioning. And I think it, there's a tremendous overlap. So I think it's going to be very difficult to pinpoint. I, I agree with Chris that, you know, looking at, you know, VDVT may be helpful. But on the other hand, the other parameters that we look at, which is, you know, the ventricular equivalent for CO2, you know, slope mm -hmm. and values also reflect, you know, right. dead space. And we see that with all the conditions that I mentioned. So I think, you know, coming to a definitive diagnosis based on cardiopulmonary exercise test is, is you know, there's no definitive way to say one way or other, just your gestalt along with all the other clinical and other variables. Yeah, I guess I, I just to to piggyback on that the the difficulty one of the difficulties in this case is is that I glossed over was that she had some true cardiomyopathy in addition to all this other stuff and so you can look at that pulmonary angiogram and there's these huge areas where there's clearly defects you know there's going to be a, a dead space problem but her exercise issues were really somewhat subtle for someone with that VQ scan in, in that um, PA gram but this is a a, a young person with a very, you know, um, active lifestyle, traveling back and forth very commonly between the coasts. And so, you know, the question really becomes, if, we're, if, if our goal as doctors is to optimize this person's quality of life for the next 40 years, then maybe it, you know, maybe it, it really is important to, to get into the nuances in a way that you can't without doing uh, a CPAT. And, you know, as you mentioned, as part of the gestalt, it just adds another piece of data along with all the other things to suggest that this is a, a pulmonary limitation, not uh, a pure cardiac or mixed cardiac pulmonary problem. Yeah, yeah, this is the classic case where you need to trend it, where you get serial data. Is critical. Chris, did you want to say something else? Uh, if there's time, um, you know, the, the thing about high VDVT, your wasted ventilation, it's an issue if someone has mechanical problems in breathing and has potentially ventilatory limitation, but most people don't have that. So you can have high VDVT that isn't necessarily consequential or impairs exercise performance. Um, uh, at the same time, you know, although um, pulmonary vascular diseases obviously make us think about uh, high VQ abnormalities, but the blood is diverted elsewhere mm -hmm. and you get low VQ abnormalities and it's often the hypoxemia uh, that is more critical in limiting exercise performance. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at that as well. Mm. You know, I were just exactly thinking, remembering a case of a marathon runner I saw, this is when I was in Boston, and she, you know, had had a baseline 
peak VO2 of like 125% predicted. Um, she had a clot in her right lower lobe, normal echo, normal resting pressures, but on repeat CPET, she only got to like 88% like predicted peak VO2. So we had two data points showing this big drop, although she still was, quote, normal. Um, and that, I used that as a decision to intervene on that clot, and she had a you know, dramatic symptomatic benefit and went back to running marathons. So, so having serial data is critical. Yeah. Yeah, chronic pulmonary hypertension happens because of unresolved clots despite being on anticoagulation. What's the story on the pathophysiology? Yeah, great question. Um, why this develops? Um, you want me to answer? Or you want? Okay. We don't know. <laughs> That's easy. So yeah, it's, it's, it's why, why acute becomes chronic in some patients and it's more extensive, we don't know. We think of it as a failure of clot lysis rather than overt hypercoagulability. In other words, these patients don't usually have measurable hypercoagulable or thrombophilias, with a few exceptions. The lupus anticoagulant is present a little bit more commonly, about 14% of them versus eight or seven percent of the normal population. But all the other clotting factors is not really any different with few minor exceptions. So say that again? Yeah, well certainly as it organizes, you can't do much about it because it's really fibrous tissue. When you look pathologically, this is fibro proliferative material. It doesn't even look like a clot anymore. Um, but why they develop this fibro proliferation we don't really know. There are some risk factors, as Sonia said, like chronic inflammatory conditions, um, maybe the size of the initial clot. Somebody asked here about whether intervening more acutely will decrease the likelihood of a chronic clot. And maybe, uh, do you guys think that way, Kushu over at Cedars, like as a justification for? They don't do that unless they're unstable. You know? Thrombectomies. I don't think that would be the justification yeah. for using it. And I've actually, heard it before, though. But just to quickly, like, actually piggyback off of your question was, yeah. and another way that we figure out, like, is it chronic clot or acute clot, is a lot of times people come in thinking it's an acute clot. They right. think it's intermediate risk PE. They go in for a pulmonary thrombectomy um, or catheter-directed lytics, and they go in there and they say, oh, this is actually chronic clot. This is not acute. Um, and so that's another way that now that, you know, we're using yeah. more interventions, yeah. people find out, and that it, there really is a difference. You, you can't use those procedures on, you know, more chronic organized clots. And, and it's, they've been tried, believe me. Yeah. We hear that a lot. Mike. Yeah, ju just with regard to the pathobiology of, you know, CTEF, um, you know, Sudar Rajagopal, you know, at Duke, I've been working with him in terms of, you know, advanced uh, mm -hmm. proteomics and sure. genomics, et cetera. And he's got a nice paper that's out um, in the Blue Journal looking at some of the things that we've, you know, worked on. So, I mean, inflammation, fibrosis, impaired, you know, clot resolution mm -hmm. are all signal transduction pathways that seem to play a role. Yeah. And there are specific cell types and, you know, macrophages and all sorts of other kind of cells that seem to be involved that are distinctly different uh, from acute clot. Yeah, no, they're definitely, I know shooters work well, and again, the group in San Diego found some abnormalities in the fibrinogen gene. You know, maybe they create clots that are more resistant to lysis due to this, this uh, mutation in fibrinogen, but that's only in some of the patients. One last really quick one, because they had a million questions on this, was the DOAC versus warfarin in patients with chronic thrombobolic disease. Maybe, Sonia, you could give us the party line on that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So party line <clears throat> and what has been most studied is the use of warfarin in these patients with CTEF, um, especially patients who are post-surgery. We prefer to use warfarin in that group. Um, but, you know, more recently, of course, with the development of DOAX and the ease and feasibility of use of those medications, um, you know, in certain patients, we are sometimes considering the use of DOAX a year after surgery. Um, now, there are certain groups that you want to make sure that you, you know, they must be on warfarin. So, for example, patients with triple positive antibody APLS, these patients must be on warfarin. Uh, patients with known hypercoagulable stays, factor V Leiden, prothrombin, you want to generally keep those patients as well on warfarin. But it's an area where uh, we're hoping that we can kind of study more and, and see, you know, if DOAX can be used. Yeah, I mean, UCSD published a kind of interesting, and I we'll, we'll have to wrap up, but it, I thought it was sort of cool. They, they looked at the specimens of the, of the PTE mm -hmm. patients uh, in a blinded way, and they looked at the amount of acute, acute material versus just chronic material, because a lot of these specimens have both acute and chronic. And they found that the patients who had been on DOAX prior to surgery had a higher incidence of acute material in the specimen, suggesting maybe they had been laying down clot more than the patients who are on warfarin, where they were almost all chronic lesions. So again, retrospective data, but I thought that was kind of interesting, but, but the jury's still out, I would say. I think it'll evolve over time, but we'll see. So, so Rich, Rich, what would you recommend? So we typically do warfarin um, post-op for at least six months, very arbitrary. Um, and then we can talk about switching to a DOAC with certain patients. Certainly, as Sonia said, patients who are having trouble getting therapeutic INRs, we'll switch them earlier. And I can't say we've seen a big difference, anecdotally. All right, so I guess we're done. Thank you, everybody. That was a great session. We have about a 10 or 15 minute break. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.